Well, I was driving in this morning and I noticed the, the water drops were not falling down as much as they were floating down. So I don't know how it was when you came in, but early this morning, uh, that's awful close to snow, a um, little too close. But anyway, this morning we are in 1 Corinthians 6 and uh, we're going to open God's word and just see what he has for us. And I'm excited um, and yet I feel the weight of what the, the passage this morning. And so um, there is a lot that we don't know in our world right now, a lot of uncertainty, but here's what we do know as Christians. It's that God is testing us, isn't he? Aren't times of trials and suffering, aren't those times of testing? And as we've seen in 1 Corinthians, God is testing our unity. God is testing our holiness you know, our goal, uh, Brian said it last week, is that our goal is not to be a mega church. Our goal is not to gather crowds as much as it is to be a holy church, a church that's like Jesus Christ. And this morning, I think that God is going to push us <laughs> closer to, to staying in step with Jesus. So if we want to be that kind of Jesus community, here's kind of the, the big idea this morning. It's that we've got to be a people of forgiveness and justice if we're gonna be that kind of people. And so 1 Corinthians 6, I wanna read the first few verses and we'll just walk through this passage. He says, if any of you has a dispute against one another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? how much more the matters of this life. He's saying, if we're gonna judge angels in the end and reign with Jesus, can't we handle some minor civil legal matters? This is so fascinating. In Hebrews 1, it says that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Like this is mind-blowing. We're not gonna spend a lot of time here, but this is an amazing thing to think about that in the future kingdom, we're going to be to reign with Jesus like kings, queens, princes, and princesses. It's gonna be amazing and mind-blowing that we're even gonna judge the angels. So verse four, he continues. So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother and that before unbelievers. So if you've been following with us through 1 Corinthians, you'll maybe see the irony here. Paul has been accused of being intellectually weak and they're kind of mocking him and they're bragging about how wise they are and kind of belittling Paul. And, and so what Paul's doing here is he's kind of patronizing them. He's saying, yeah, for being so wise, you can't find a single wise person in your church to settle some minor legal matters. Verse seven, as it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. He's saying, if your first impulse as a Christian is to sue to litigate against a fellow believer, you don't understand the gospel. 
That's what the world does, but that's not what Christians do. He says at the end of verse seven, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do this to brothers and sisters. We live in a hyper-judgmental world, don't we? The first sign of you disagree with me or us and our tribe, like we're canceling you, we're suing you, we're taking this to court. And if we are no different than the world, like if that's what Veritas Church is, like we're kind of wasting our time because this is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. If you're taking notes, the first point is simply this, the church is a people who forgive. The church is a people who forgive. The way to solve conflict in the church is the Jesus way. Do you guys remember the Jesus way? Matthew 5, verse 38 through 45, Jesus says in his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. One of the ways that you demonstrate that you're a child of God and you're, you're in God's family is that you live this way. You overcome evil with good and love. And if, if you're at an impasse relationally with a brother or sister, you're in conflict that seems like unsolvable, irreconcilable, here's what we do as Christians. It's the Christian way. It says that love covers a multitude of sins. Paul is essentially saying here, hey, why not, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated is his way of saying, take one for the team. Like we know how to do this as Christians. We don't just have to demand that we are right. No, we are not moving on relationally till you say that I am right. That's not the Christian way to the point of it becomes such a fight that we end up in court. Ryan Hamby was, was preaching at Salt Company on Thursday and he made this statement. The further away you get from the cross, the bigger your conflict becomes. And he drew a picture of like a cross and two people and it's like a triangle. The further away they got from that point, which is the cross, the further they became and the, the word conflict just kept getting bigger, 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 bigger until it reaches like infinity and we're like separated from each other. The further we get from the cross, the bigger our conflict becomes. And I think it's also true the other way, like the closer you get to the cross, the harder it becomes to hold on to your bitterness, your anger and how right you are. I have an objection to what Paul's saying here. What I just preached is I believe what Paul is telling us to do. But 
I have been wrestling with Paul all week on this text. And here is my question. Paul, have you not seen all the victims of abuse in the church? And I'm quote, the so-called church. Some churches seem like a safer place for perpetrators than for victims. Why would I, if I was wronged in this way, why would I obey 1 Corinthians 6? If that is what's true of the church. Now, let me keep reading and and explain this. Look at verse nine, what he says right after this. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? He says, verse nine, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Okay, this, this brings us into the context of last week in 1 Corinthians 5. He's concluding this thought. This is one stream of, of thought and one argument that Paul's giving here. What he's addressing here is the fact that the Corinthians are not dealing with sin, they are tolerating it. Does that make sense? What Paul is saying is these Corinthians To them, sin is not as sinful as it is to God. They're just accepting it, welcoming it into the church, tolerating it, justifying it, ignoring it. And Paul wants to clarify, unrepentant sinners, like people who refuse to confess their sin, they are not Christians. He says they will not be in God's kingdom. So the context of this about lawsuits and not taking them into court, but bringing them to church leaders, the context is severe mercy. Have you heard this term, severe mercy? This means that there is a harshness to God's mercy. Remember last week, Brian was talking about how the doctor must give an honest diagnosis before healing can happen. That's severe mercy. When you go into the doctor's offices and they say, you have this condition and it's bad. They don't minimize it. They don't sugarcoat it. They just tell you the truth. That has to precede the steps toward healing that they're gonna suggest for you. That is severe mercy. And that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, we need to see sin in the same way that God sees sin. So here's the the second point. So if you were to bring your issue or your conflict or your wrong to church leadership, any wise leader knows the second point, if you're taking notes, is this. Forgiveness is not opposed to justice. Forgiveness is not opposed to justice. They actually come together in the gospel. 
I want us to see this, first of all, in verse seven and eight. The context here is that Paul is talking about, he uses this word defrauding or cheating. That word defraud means to illegally obtain money from another person. Paul is referring here to minor civil cases, not criminal behavior, right? So we wouldn't say, hey, murder, bring that to the church leaders and we'll sort it all out, okay? Just that's, we got this, okay? That's not what Paul's talking about here. We're talking about some minor civil cases, not criminal behavior, Now, here's what else I think this this implies. Paul helping us see the gravity or the weight of sin. Here it is. If we as church leaders are not obeying 1 Corinthians 5, then we should not expect you to obey 1 Corinthians 6. If we as church leaders are not taking sin seriously, if we're just leaving all the rotten apples to infect everybody else and we're just like, ah, it's whatever, then why would a victim come to the leadership if they know that there's the wrong done against them is just gonna be minimized? They're not gonna listen. Does that make sense? So I think what Paul's doing in verse nine to awaken us to the reality of sin is he's also speaking to the church leaders here. Justice, forgiveness, how is it that those two things come together? Three years ago, I heard one of the most sobering and powerful gospel presentations that I had ever heard. It happened in a courtroom with the whole world watching. Larry Nasser, the former USA gymnastics team doctor was accused of sexually assaulting over 250 women. During his trial, he carried a Bible with him into the courtroom. And the last woman to speak and give her impact statement after all these other women had shared was Rachel Denhollander. She was the first one to come out publicly against Larry Nasser. What I'm about to read is not a short quote. This is gonna take me a few minutes to read it and I wanna read it. It's mostly, uh, the, it's like the last 10 minutes of her impact statement. And the reason I wanna read it is because I wanna let her proclaim it as only a Christian survivor could. Listen to these words. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. 
You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, then you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Throughout this process, I have clung to a quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, quote, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how did I get this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight. What I was comparing the universe to when I called it unjust. Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was, and I know it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. The straight line is not measured based on your perception or anyone else's perception. And this means I can speak the truth about my abuse without minimization or mitigation. And I can call it evil because I know what goodness is. And this is why I pity you. Because when a person loses the ability to define good and evil, when they cannot define evil, they can no longer define and enjoy what is truly good. When a person can harm another human being, especially a child, without true guilt, they have lost the ability to truly love. Larry, you have shut yourself off from every truly beautiful and good thing in this world that could have and should have brought you joy and fulfillment, and I pity you for it. She goes on, look around the courtroom. Remember what you have witnessed these past seven days. This is what it looks like when someone chooses to put their selfish desires above the safety and love for those around them and let it be a warning to us all and moving forward as a society, this is what it looks like when the adults in authority do not respond properly to disclosures of sexual assault. This is what it looks like when institutions create a culture where a predator can flourish unafraid and unabated. And this is what it looks like when people in authority refuse to listen put friendships in front of the truth, fail to create or enforce proper policy and fail to hold enablers accountable. But may the horror expressed in this courtroom over the, 
over the last seven days be motivation for anyone and everyone, no matter the context, to take responsibility if they have failed in protecting a child, to understand the incredible failures that led to this week and to do it better the next time. Judge Aquilina, I plead with you as you deliberate the sentence you give Larry, send a message that these victims are worth everything. In order to meet both the goals of this court, I plead with you to impose the maximum sentence under the plea agreement because everything is what these survivors are worth. Thank you. As she walked off the stand, the judge said, you are the bravest person I've ever had in my courtroom. That's bravery. To be able to look at your abuser in the eyes in a courtroom and say, your sin is far worse than you think. But God's amazing grace is powerful enough to unleash forgiveness and to save the worst of sinners. A maximum sentence, justice, and the good news of grace, forgiveness, are perfectly compatible in the cross. And as we think about what Paul is saying here about sin and about God's justice and judgment, I also ask the question, what about all the injustice in the world that goes unprosecuted? What about all the victims that don't get to say this to the perpetrators? I was listening to a lecture that Rachel Den Hollander gave at a university and she threw out this, this uh, statistic that out of, a hun- or out of a thousand assaults, only 300 of those will come forward. And out of those 300, how many will be charged? Seven. And out of those seven, how many will face jail time? One. When I was thinking about this, the, the injustice in the world, what do we do with this? And you know, Paul says here, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be treated? He's encouraging us to entrust our suffering and the injustice to Jesus Christ because listen, Larry Nasser's prison time is not gonna be enough to atone for all the evil that he had done. This is why we need more than a human court, a human judge to give out justice. This is why we need to involve the church because it's here that we understand how to come to the cross and find true healing and restoration. And Rachel Denhollander, though the wounds are deep, the healing is deeper. And it's amazing to see her free because of the good news of Jesus Christ, it's amazing. It was bravery, it was powerful. 
And so I wanna read this again because I want us to land with this good news of the gospel. Look at how Paul proclaims the gospel here. Verse nine, he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now listen, verse 11. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. This is the good news of the gospel. That's who we used to be, us, the church. We used to be that list. And you're like, man, there's some, that list, that's in the Bible? Yeah, we're gonna let Jeff maybe address some of that next week. Uh, We'll see if he gets to it. Um, I'm gonna conveniently move on. No, actually, we just don't have time to get into the details of that, but yes, that is in the Bible, all of it. And if you're taking notes, we're gonna end with this, this third point here. In the end, everyone will get justice. This is why we can entrust our suffering to Jesus because everyone will get justice. You will either be judged or justified. Those are the two ways that God will establish justice for eternity is that people will either be judged or justified. And the reason I capitalize in the end, you know what, the end of a book, it's like when you see those two words, it's over. Like not to be continued, it's just like the end. And there will be an end to this earth. And at the end, God will sort it all out. I promise the Bible, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. And when I say, you will be either judged or justified, judged. If you are judged, that means that you alone pay the eternal price for your sin. If you're judged, you are choosing to take the penalty upon yourself. This would be rejecting Jesus Christ. This would be saying, no, I don't need Jesus because I'm righteous within myself. I'm self-righteous. I don't need the righteousness of Jesus Christ on my behalf because I've, I can take it. Like, I'm either not that bad. You know, it's like looking at Larry Nasser and like, well, thank you that I'm not like him, right? No, but the truth in the gospel, if we are reading this correctly, we have way more in common with Larry Nasser than we do Jesus Christ. And all of us, all of us in this room stand guilty before a holy God. And that's why the second point is so good. You, that's option A, which I hope nobody wants that option. Option B is to be justified, justified. That's what Paul here says. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. These are all like passive in the sense that these things were done to you. That means if you're justified, God pays the eternal price for your sin. That's what it means to be justified is that God pays the price for you. Like all the wrath and judgment that you deserved gets put not on you, but on Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ absorbs the penalty of your sin. So the gospel of grace means that somebody has to pay the price. God can't just pardon a sinner and kind of just sweep it under the rug and say, ah, you're good. Well, where does that sin go? Where does that judgment go? If Judge Aquilina just says, yeah, Rachel, I hear all you're saying, but you know what? I really like Larry. He's a good guy. We're just gonna let him go. You'd be like, whoa, oh, that's nice. Where did the sin go? Where did it go? And in the gospel, God is both just and the one who justifies sinful people. That's how sinners can get into heaven because the punishment is put on the person, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And I love how this, the passive tense of like, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. He's saying that holiness was done for you, to you, not by you. Like you didn't do the washing, you didn't do the cleansing, God did it on your behalf through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that is how in the gospel, holy, the holiness of Jesus is available to the worst of sinners and the great news and the paradox of the gospel is that it is your sin that qualifies you for justification. Isn't that amazing? It's your sin that qualifies you to be a Christian. That is amazing. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, his next letter, chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And that's what he says here. Some of you used to be like that, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the spirit of our God, you have been cleansed. That's not who you are anymore. Let me illustrate it this way. Paul wants us to know who we are right now, not who we were and used to be. I want you to imagine um, you could go back in time 20 years and have a conversation with little LeBron James. Now I'm thinking about this because uh, the Lakers just won the NBA championship. I know it's weird. Not many people watch because it's kind of a weird time to watch basketball. It's out of season and it's just a weird time. But anyway, uh, yeah, the Lakers won. LeBron, uh, you know, is, is the star of the show. And so uh, I want you to imagine you going back in time, 20 years, and you go back and you walk into little LeBron's house and you see LeBron there and, and he's up to like, it's like, it's like two in the morning and he's, he's sitting gaming, he's got his headphones on and he's kind of, kind of a little chubby. He's, he's kind of overweight. He's, he's eating Cheetos and chocolate donuts and he's kind of wasting his life away. And you, you get a chance to talk to him. What would you say to little 13 year old LeBron James? He's, he's in there and you're talking to him. He's like, you're like, hey man, like, do you ever play basketball? He's like, no, I'm, I'm overweight. My feet are too big. I'm clumsy. We've all been there, right? We've been, t you know, 12, 13 year olds, right? Disproportional and he's clumsy and he's like, he's like, I'll never amount to anything. And you're like, oh, oh no, 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 no. Actually, guess what? 
You, LeBron, you're going to be King James. You're going to be LeBron James. Like, listen, and you start going through his career and like, LeBron, you are going to be the second best basketball player of all time, right? Okay, I'm a child of the 80s, had to say it. Okay, I have some people agree. All right, but anyway, that's what you'd say is like, LeBron, this is who you are. This is your destiny. This is your future. Put down the Cheetos and chocolate donuts and start living into that LeBron because that's who you are. I know that because I'm a time traveler. (laughs) That would be weird. What I'm saying to you, let me be a time traveler (laughs) coming back to 2020 because I know what our future is. And I'm saying to you, Veritas Church, you are going to reign in majesty that is unbounded. You are going to be the most glorious prince or princess in God's kingdom. You're going to be white as snow and so white that people would be tempted to bow down and worship you if they could see you now. We know what they do with the angels, right? That's who you are. Now just go start living that out. If you're living in bitterness and anger over all the wrongs done to you, that's not who you are. Entrust your suffering to Jesus. If you've sinned and you're hiding in darkness and you're a prisoner of guilt and shame, that's not who you are. Confess your sin, tell somebody and let them speak the good news of the gospel to you. The world is a place of harsh judgments without mercy, but the church, we are a people marked by justice and forgiveness. Let's pray together. I want us to think about the image of, remember the, the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told, the, the son who went out and just squandered the wealth? Remember that moment he decides, I, I'm going home because I have nothing left. When the father sees him, what does he do? He comes running. That's what God does when a, a sinner just takes that step, that single step of repentance and says, God, will you please forgive me? And he comes running. I just want to invite you to to just turn to Jesus Christ and let him just run the rest of the way toward you. Let's come to the cross of Christ where Sinful people get washed and cleansed. Let's worship him.